Welcome to the Alive and Kicking podcast. I'm your host, Kay Eck, and this is where we talk to ordinary people about their extraordinary lives. Welcome back to the Alive and Kicking podcast. Today in the studio, we have a very special guest. Uh, please welcome Sarah Lindgren. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, Kay. Thanks for having me. This is very exciting. I, uh, you and I have known each other for quite a few years now, and you came to teach yoga at my yoga studio, whoa, back in 2012 already. Gosh. And since then, we've just become good friends. And I'm so happy to have you in my circle. And one of the incredible things is that these in some of these long lasting relationships where people are on a similar journey, I get to watch as you expand and grow and become wiser. And that's been so much fun for me. Yeah, I definitely feel like I was an infant. <laughs> when I first stepped into to your studio, that was actually my first um, yoga teaching job that was in a studio setting. So prior to that, I had been in a, a gym setting, which was interesting and very beneficial in its, its own way. It taught me a lot as a teacher, but um, I remember stepping into your space and the, there was like a magnification of ease and openness there. It was very supportive. So quite the little incubator that you had there. That was, that was a good place to start your journey that way, because, um, I just feel like, uh, it was such a special place and such a special time. And, um, it was also like such a huge incubator for me, just in terms of life and everything that I learned by doing that. It's, it's, it's really incredible. So today we're going to talk about you, and I know that you grew up in Missouri. <laughs> in some parts, yeah, some people might might pronounce it Missouri. We call it Missouri. Okay, so you grew up in Missouri, <laughs> which is a separate and distinct from Missouri, I guess. And uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. What was growing up in Missouri like? Okay, so just because it's fun to share with everybody, the town that I grew up in is called Peculiar. <laughs> Which is, yeah, it's super fitting for like, I feel like my entire adolescence because I was odd and awkward and I was a peculiar person, you know, in the middle of, of uh, nowhere, Missouri. It's about an hour away from Kansas City. So it was pretty rural. Like people have their, their big belt buckles and, and their cowboy boots and, you know, their big mutter trucks. And it was, um, it was definitely a very interesting place to, to grow up in. It was because it was fairly rural. Um, there was a lot of space for us to explore. We had like our own children's tribe in the community and we'd run down to like the creek and get muddy and dirty and go play in the woods. And it was very like um, very Winnie the Pooh, hundred acre woods kind of kind of style. Like we just mm-hmm. had had the run of it, um, which was good and bad. 
Mm. You know, it definitely gave us, gave us space to, um, to learn how to lean on each other, you know, which is, is excellent without the assistance of adults. I feel like, um, you know, as a parent now, it's challenging to find time and space for my kids to explore, um, in a way that they feel safe and secure that also doesn't freak out other parents, you know, letting kids just kind of run scares people these days. Um, yeah, yeah. So it it was definitely nice to, to be a a wild child. Mm. And what were the downsides of that? Um, well, (laughs) because there wasn't a whole lot of, um, constant parental, um, uh, watching, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. They weren't, they weren't always present. Um, one of the children in our neighborhood had a zip line, very much like home alone style. So there was like the handlebars and you zipped from a platform up in the trees. It was higher than like the two story building of the house, um, across to the other side. And I guess for boys, it's a pretty easy thing to do. Um, I'm stubborn and, um, and I don't like I've never liked to believe that there's something that somebody else can do that I can't do, um, especially when everybody else is showing me that they can do it. <laughs> so I climbed this tree, got up on the platform, held on to the handlebars. There's no harness. It's just handlebars. Literally, like, and I don't remember any of this because the minute that I stepped off of the platform, I fell. Yeah, and I sustained a concussion. So my head hit the back of a, uh, a tree trunk. The back of my head hit a tree trunk. And my uh, young teenage friends in all of their wisdom, when I got up and started, I said, I'm going to go home and started walking in the wrong direction. They decided to help me get home. I went home. The next thing I remember is waking up in my bed with a bucket next to my bed and getting sick. And then my mom came in and gave me some medicine because she thought I had the flu. And then about a week later, I went back to school and everybody's asking me if I'm okay. And I have no recollection of the experience whatsoever. It took years before I could even recall that we went to the tree and that I went up it. I still can't remember anything after that, but I do remember climbing up the tree. Yeah. So that would be one of the downsides of not having so much parental engagement. Right. Sometimes stupid shit happens. (laughs) Stupid shit happens. Yeah. I also, um, I also uh, participated in car surfing as a teenager, not recommended. It does hurt when you fall. Yep. Yeah. So it sounds like you had a rather adventurous uh, nature to you. And I, I, I can relate so much to those, to those stories because I also was such a tomboy. And if I was like, I had two older brothers and there were a lot of boys in the neighborhood and I was just like bound and determined to not be seen as a girl, you know? So I was tough and I would fight, I would get into physical fights with boys, like wrestling around and you know, stuff like that. And I was like, bring it on. I can beat up any boy on the block which was, you know, ridiculous, but, uh, yes, I can relate to that. So what, what was your sense of yourself as a child? And especially like in terms of how you fit into your family? Mm. Um, I, I definitely always 
had that like black sheep kind of sensation. Um, as an adult, I can see that there were several of us that were black sheep within our family. Um, but we didn't really, we can see that a little bit within each other, but really didn't have like the language to be able to, um, to cultivate a relationship around that. Um, I, from a very early age, I was very interested in religion and spirituality as well as like the cosmos and like why, why we're here and how on earth that, how did that happen? Um, and I don't believe that was something that my siblings or parents um, understood or really knew how to respond to. Um, so they would, you know, I, I was seeking something and I didn't really know what that was. So I, I went to church with my friends. I would do those kinds of things. Um, but definitely um, it, while they supported me, there wasn't a whole lot of understanding that. And I was very, um, flamboyant and loud. And, um, I, I think I would be labeled as a high needs child. Um, I needed a lot of reassurance. I needed a lot of, um, stimulation and, uh, I like extremes, even as an adult, I like extreme softness and I like extreme challenge. I like being in the center is a really hard place for me to be. That's definitely been a lot of my work as an adult is trying to like find that space where I'm happy in the center. But um, yes, as a young person, it was very, um, very extreme oriented on both, both mm -hmm. edges. Yeah. So do you, first of all, I want to ask about the black sheep um, syndrome, because uh, I remember one of my children saying in a conversation that they considered themselves to be the black sheep of the family. And I was like, come again? <laughs> like, what? And I thought, well, if you're, if you were a black sheep, you were the like the most loved, respected, honored, adored, and cherished black sheep that I've ever seen in my life. So I just think it's it's interesting, like, did your family see you as a black sheep or was this sort of self, was this a self-evaluation that you didn't fit in? I would say that, it, that it's both. Um, you know, we all grew up with like the stories of our childhood and a lot of the stories that um, I got to hear on repeat were about um, my extremes. Uh, so, so that was a big part of, of my adolescence, knowing that my, what was normal for me was extreme for everybody else. Mm. But as you said, there was, there was a lot of adoration. I was, so um, I'm from a blended family. Both of my parents had a single child coming into their marriage and I'm the child that united our family. And then I have a younger sister as well. So there's four of us that all grew up in the same household together. And, um, my older sister was pretty much like the stereotypical popular girl. My brother was kind of, um, the stereotypical little genius, you know, blowing things up in the basement, you know, ex exploring scientific experiments and things like that. And I was, I was just set aflame. Um, so being that person that kind of unified the family, I, I did receive a lot of love 
all the way around. Um, which is probably why as an adult, I look at my family and I, uh, my siblings and I don't agree on this. I thought that we were all like in it together and supporting each other. And, and that we had, um, this great, beautiful unit. I'm a bit of a romantic too. So I might be romanticizing that a little bit, but, um, my older siblings definitely felt like there was more like sibling rivalry. Mm-hmm. So that's also very interesting. And my younger sister felt like everybody was enamored with me and uh, she had a lot of resentment for me. So it's, it is interesting that black sheep syndrome, because I, while I didn't feel like I fit because of stories and, and, you know, many other factors, um, I also uh, did receive a, a massive amount of love. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that this that you you're talking about your sense of yourself being influenced by other people's perceptions of you, that that what they were considering that you were about was these extremes. And then you kind of took that on as like, oh, that's not normal. That's extreme. And I, I, I think of like how much of us is actually formed by our parents' reactions to us, our siblings' feelings about us and stuff like that. It's kind of crazy, really interesting also. It is. And I think that that, um, while I embrace being um, a sensationalist is what I choose to call it now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I embrace it fully. I have definitely had you know, a lifetime to undo all of this, this work, right? All of, all of these labels. Um, sometimes I like to wear those hats. Sometimes it's kind of fun to wear those, those hats, but uh, recognizing that, that the time and place where these things were happening um, were somebody else's experience, not necessarily my own, and trying to figure out where in that flow is, is my authentic, authenticity and allowing um, and giving grace to my parents and my siblings for for them voicing their perceptions, um, because without it, I wouldn't be where I am today. Yeah. yeah, such a dichotomy. Yeah. So in this in this sensationalist lifestyle that you like to lead, what is it about those extremes that you enjoy? Is it like do you feel more alive in those situations? And then yeah. also. What is it about the middle that's uncomfortable for you? That's a really beautiful question. I, so I think the middle is uncomfortable for me because I haven't spent as much time there. Um, I would say that the, the sensationalist experience of um, it it tends to be, I'm a very emotional person. I'm, I'm all like water and fire. When you start looking at, at lots of different modalities, whether it's yoga or astrological or whatever, it's, I'm just, that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm, uh, very, very fluid with my emotions. So those can tend to be, to be quite extreme in one way or another, Um, and I, I, while I embrace that, I recognize that it can frighten some other people. 
right? When I was young, I was very um, aggressive and angry a lot. Um, and even as an adult, I do, you know, like with my yoga practice, for instance, I enjoy the slowest, softest experiences, like the restorative and the yoga nidra. And then I like the things that are challenging that make me feel like, um, I'm strong or I can overcome something. Mm. So it's almost like I have to have this experience of, um, intensity in the challenging realm. And then the healing happens on the other side and the softness. Mm. Um, yeah. And I, I guess I just kind of pass through the middle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe it isn't even a middle. <laughs> Maybe it's just, I just feel like, you know, we put all these labels on our experiences, like the word extreme. And, you know, maybe it's just like, that's where you, that's where your sweet spot is. Like, you know? Yeah. I think that's where I do my best work. Um, but that's also like so many of us, I've um, experienced, you know, trauma in my life. And when I was 13, I experienced two, um, two, I had two experiences of, of date rape, if you will. And so at that point, um, that fire really took off. There was a lot of fire, a lot of anger and the healing process for that really didn't start until after I had had my second child. It had been a, I had repressed those memories and I had been acting out doing all of these things that people would consider to be crazy. Um, just so I could find, you know, something I could make contact with. So I think that that's part of that extremism is trying to find a place where I can land, right? Um, that is also like safe and secure. Mm. Wow, that's really profound. So those experiences were, you were quite young, really young. Yeah, I was 13. Yeah. With both of them. Yeah. And did your parents know about it? Did you tell your parents? No, they did not find out until, until, you know, a decade later, a little more than that. Why, why did you not tell them? Um, initially there was definitely shame, you know, um, I like so many people who have been in those experiences. I thought that it was something that I asked for something that, that I brought on by something that maybe I did, you know, I was a 13 year old little girl. There was nothing I could have done that would have made that okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, and then after that first experience, um, that definitely uh, made my the ground very uneven, very shaky. So like most children who don't feel secure, um, I acted out a lot and, um, those extreme behaviors became, um, unhealthy extremes. So I found myself sneaking out, going to parties and uh, then putting myself in a position where another unsafe experience took place. And that was, um, well, those two were definitely the most violating. There were tons of like little micro violations between that point and the point where I was sitting on the couch with my husband and I looked at him and I said, I was raped. It just hit me like a ton of bricks and the tears came and all of the thing, you know, all of the emotions came to the surface. Mm. Um, 
And then, you know, I sought out um, therapeutic help from, from a local women's shelter in Aurora Mutual Ground, which I absolutely adore. Um, they've been a big part of, of my, my healing and transformation as well. So, yeah. yeah. So after that, after the initial experience and then being coupled with um, unhealthy behaviors, drugs, alcohol, sex, all of those things, mm -hmm. um, it like locked it in a box and was put back so far that I didn't even, I had completely forgotten that it had existed. Yeah. Yeah. I was just talking with a guest um, yesterday who grew up in Colombia in the eighties and had an extremely violent um, childhood in every way. And she had absolutely no memories of her childhood whatsoever until she did and much, much later. Um, so that is, I think, a common experience when you're very young and you have no tools to cope with that. And of course, um, when you're 13, like that's not a conversation that 13 year olds are having with each other. So there's no peer support. There's no, not even any awareness that that could actually happen. So, um, yeah, very, very difficult. So how did, um, you know, other than the fact that your the extreme behavior went from adventure to, you know, danger, I guess you could say, or um, unhealthy as, as you put it, how did those, did that sort of background influence the decisions you made moving into adulthood? Um, they were react, it was all reactionary. Um, very few of the decisions I made moving into adulthood were, um, were planned or well thought out. I ended up dropping out of high school, didn't explore college at all. Um, found myself in an abusive relationship where I was again, just reacting, not, not responding, but just reacting to, um, to what was happening. And that was, that, that was um, in and of itself, another set of, of traumatic years. It was, um, he very effectively uh, cut the cord between me and my family. He was very um, skilled in that, um, having the, the wide lens, I can, can see that I was not the first of his, um, the, the first experience that he had, had, um, manipulated in that way. Um, and even at the end of our relationship, I was able to recognize that, that his patterning was going to continue and I had a choice to make and I, I stayed with him longer than I should have in that space of knowing, because I was worried that it was going to happen to another person. Mm. And so it was falling on, it was doing that martyrdom piece where at least it can stop with me. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So, wow. So what were your parents experiencing as you watching you on your life path? Um, they were grasping at straws, most definitely. So um, I remember in middle school, after I had kind of like imploded, um, they showed up one day to take me to counseling, which was just another explosion. I didn't know it was coming. They just showed up at the school to like whisk me away and take me to see somebody. 
um, which definitely sent, you know, as at that point I was 15. So definitely sending signals that something was wrong with me, you know, that I needed to be fixed. Um, and at that point, everything had been kind of like locked away. So I, well, if I would have had maybe a, an opportunity to explore with a counselor that I felt supported by or, or any kind of energy worker, um, it could have been a different outcome. But I walked into there with all of my barriers up, you know, um, and so that was not necessarily a, a very fruitful experience. Um, they were, they were grasping at straws, definitely trying to like figure out what was going on. You know, they wanted to help me, but didn't really know how. Yeah. Cause they didn't know what either. Cause right. Yeah. It's kind of an impossible situation, you know, as a parent to, tr to be trying to figure out what's going on and also knowing that a lot is not in under your control. And because obviously a strong-willed person is going to do what they want to do, you know, which it sounds like you were. So um, then what, okay. So after you, how did, were you finally able to leave that relationship? So let's see, I moved out of my parents' house when I was 16. Um, so that's when I met this person who was uh, 15 years, my senior. Wow. So they were not thrilled about that. And they looked at legal actions that they could take in Missouri at the age of 17, you can essentially, there's nothing else my parents could do. They couldn't force the cops to come pick me up and take me home. And I was just a few months away from my, from my birthday. So they felt like that might do more harm than good by, by creating that force. Um, and then I was in that relationship until, um, what, 2001, uh, when we how moved many, up here to Chicago. So let's see, that would have been about six, five, six years. It's a long relationship. Wow. Um, and yes, and it was in, incredibly um, emotionally abusive. Um, so many things happened <laughs> in that experience. Um, yeah, but that is ultimately what brought me to Illinois. So again, there's that piece where all of this muck that I've gone through, all of this challenge and turmoil that I would not wish upon anybody, there's now this other side. Like I have this beautiful life now and I wouldn't be where I am today if I wouldn't have had all of these other pieces. So you're this person that you were in the relationship with moved the both of you to Illinois. You moved together. We did move together. Um, his cousin had a job offer in Chicago. So like a week before Christmas, um, his cousin had, had asked um, both of us if we'd want to move with him because he couldn't afford the rent in Chicago on his own. And I jumped at the chance when I was in eighth grade, actually, um, our school took a, a trip to Chicago and my mother came with me. And I remember looking up at the skyscrapers and saying, I'm going to live here someday. And she was like, okay, honey, you, you do that. <laughs> so when I actually did, I think she, she was a little surprised, not to mention heartbroken because it was, I just, I disappeared right before, you know, all these, these holidays that mean so much in our, in our culture. 
Yeah. And plus you were moving with this person that you didn't approve of and they could probably see more than you could about how damaging that relationship really was for you. Yes, most definitely. I know that my mom did without a doubt, both she and my father, their first relationships um, that they both had their, their first children with um, were, were not healthy relationships. There was a lot of drug and alcohol abuse in those. So they could definitely see all the flags. Oh my God. That must've been torture for them. I think so. Yeah. So when did you start to, uh, what happened after that relationship ended? How did you start to come aware of what was the happening for you? Um, to be honest, it was still several years before I started to, um, to wake up, I was still very much on like a path of self-destruction. Um, in that initial relationship, um, he very cleverly crafted this desire for me to be a sex object. Right. Um, and started having me as soon as I was old enough and in Missouri, you're old enough to start, um, dancing, um, exotic dancing when you're 18. So, the moment that I was old enough to do that, he essentially had, had, um, convinced me that was something that, that I should be doing, that that would be good for me. Um, so that was my path, um, to financial freedom. Right. Um, so after I, uh, was no longer in relationship with him, that was how I was continuing to pay my bills. And, and while I, was in a, in a very unhealthy work environment. Um, I was able to see the spectrum, right? The spectrum of the people who were coming in to work, to go to college, the people who were, who were very much like where I was just kind of, um, on that path of self-destruction, but maybe not quite at, um, as rapid of a pace as some people. And then there were, you know, the people who were severe drug addicts, um, that, uh, were engaging in every unhealthy behavior, you know, for their soul, their spirit that you can, that you can imagine. Um, so that, that went on for a while, um, until I met, um, my, I guess, I'm in the process of divorce. So my, um, the person I'm uncoupling from, (laughs) um, and that, you know, it it was just, it's just been a string of unhealthy relationships. Um, while that relationship had initially started in a a space of nurturing, you know, I, I had like princess syndrome, Mm -hmm. right. He was my knight in shining armor coming to save me and take me away from all of this um, chaos and turmoil in my life. Um, and, and it was, it was a reprieve. There was a sweet spot there where, um, I was on my own and starting to dismantle some of the destructive behaviors that, that I had been engaging in and starting to look at what are my options? Like I was finally able to start to see value in myself, which was a beautiful gift. And I'll always be grateful, um, to my ex for that. Um, but 
as we all know, when you are, when you're not well, you continue in those patterns of, of kind of like find, uh, seek and, uh, and find, you know, you, you pacify one thing and then another thing comes up and you're often not at the source or at the root of, of, of that, um, trauma or problem. So, uh, you know, we, we had two beautiful children together. And when my youngest was, um, about two years old is when I, I recognized that I had like this massive sack of trauma. I knew I was aware of like the relationship trauma and the idea, you know, um, of, of being in that verbally and mentally abusive relationship and all of the work that I needed to do to note it, to become aware of my own strength and value. But I still hadn't noticed that underlying cause or root of it. Um, so I, I went through the therapies at mutual ground, which was absolutely beautiful. I, I learned a lot of how to, to pull myself out of a triggered response. Um, so that way, you know, if I was having a flashback, which happens a lot with people who have the repressed memories, they just kind of come back at random times. It can be triggered by a sound an experience, a word, um, or nothing at all. So I learned how to count planks in, in the floor or, or tiles in the ceiling or whatever there was multiples of, because that would, that would help me ground. Um, and then once that treatment um, was over, because it was offered um, by a student who was in a therapy program, so it was completely free. Um, again, getting back to the value, I didn't feel that I had the ability to pay, right, for these services that I needed. There was, there was that that guilt piece. Um, so when that was over, I was kind of floundering for a little bit. And um, my first experience with yoga was when I was pregnant with Hannah, my oldest daughter. And I didn't really realize all of the trauma that I had been carrying. But I remember leaving that practice, having it be the first time that I felt like I was inhabiting my body. Mm. For a really long time, I was able to breathe and I didn't realize how profound that was. Um, so I would come back to yoga through those couple of years while the girls were pretty small um, before I realized that that was the key for me to be able to take everything that I learned in therapy and counseling and put it into my body and to make it work for me to stop actually having those flashbacks um, and extreme triggers. It wasn't until I coupled both the wisdom and the knowledge of how to manage the physical or the, the mental emotional piece and putting it into the physical body and letting myself move through it that I was able to, to start to promote healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. You know, I'm thinking about your movement through these relationships and um, how how there's multiple ways of looking at it and multiple sort of levels that, it, that these relationships are working on. So you can think of it as, as that you were moving unconsciously. Like there were, there were unconscious belief systems and traumas that were propelling your behavior that you were not aware of in connecting with different people. But also, as you say, like there is sometimes these relationships do serve a higher purpose of providing 
that reprieve, as you say, or um, giving you the financial wherewithal to do something or to just take a breather. And then as you gain more self-awareness, then a new aspect of the relationship comes in that, that also serves your growth. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, they're, they're these relationships, even if they end up not working out, they have so many beautiful benefits and gifts to them. And one of the gifts is that sometimes we outgrow them, you know, like it's, um, yeah, it's kind of a crazy ride. And, but for me, it really helps to, it, you know, if I can see the totality of all of my experiences, then no one experience can is defines me one or is the um is the mistake they're always catalysts for some greater growth you know yeah the cumulative experience of my lifetime to this point i i'm i'm grateful for because i for the first time in my life and i've been saying that really since i um started teaching yoga. That was a very empowering practice for me um, because of the way it's helped me heal, heal my trauma. I've had this strong desire to, to give back and to share that with people. Um, so each step that I've taken in that space has um, definitely helped me be feel like I'm living my best life each day. It definitely um, gives me purpose. And I, while I'm not one that believes that necessarily our paths are written out for us, I do believe that our souls come here for an experience. And um, my, I believe that my soul knew more, of course, than like my physical human, my skin suit, um, knew how to manage and to traverse this. And the more that I am able to anchor into that experience of like soul space, the more I feel guided in the fact that all of these things that I've had to endure are really in service of what my soul came here to do, which is to help people heal, to help people know love and to know self-love. And the only way I can do that is, is by knowing what self-love is not right. I need to have that. I needed to have that experience of wanting it all to be over of having no self-worth, no self-value to be able to be in a space where I can see my vibrancy and radiate from my heart space, even though it's horrifyingly scary for me, right. To show up with that vulnerability, but at the same time, I know it's necessary. And then that's what my soul, that's what I'm here to do. So, yeah, it does like emboldens you, you know, to go through these experiences that we have. And I also feel that from my own path, I could say that the more experience you have trusting the soul's wisdom on this path, the easier the transmutation of these difficulties becomes, you know, it's almost like as soon as you recognize what's happening, what's at play, you acknowledge it, 
show appreciation for it, learn from it, it's like gone. And it's definitely in, in my experience getting easier, but you know, never say never. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would definitely agree with that. And, and, you know, that's also one of the things that's really beautiful about time is we have this opportunity to look back and I can see these moments when I was really young before any of my trauma cycles began um, connection to um, ancestors that had passed. And again, not being able to necessarily understand. Um, I, I'm, I'm blessed to have a mom that's a little bit like on the fringes, if you will. She, nothing is out of the ordinary. Um, so there was a lot of acceptance for me to say, well, I feel like I'm getting these messages from grandma. I feel like I'm getting this I feel like, you know, I've had these experiences, these thoughts, these reoccurring dreams. And, and I look back at those now um, with everything that I've had to walk through. And I recognize that I had that connection so I could make my way through these experiences and not necessarily be alone. They're definitely like my guardian angels. There's a reason I had all these experiences, but didn't go all, all the way, you know, into becoming a heroin addict and having a drug overdose. There's a reason why the times that I tried to commit suicide, they failed. Um, and I, and I, I do believe that they've been in support, you know, it's like, I got my, my squad behind me and I'm the only one that can see them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so happy you do have your squad there for you. So how would you, um, what would you have to, to offer people who are experiencing for the first time um, a recollection or memory that they had suppressed that was difficult? Um, you can't do it by yourself, I think is the first thing that comes to mind. Eventually, once you start to trust yourself again, because when you come into that space of that repressed memory, you don't know if it's real. Like you have so much doubt that it ever even happened, but it feels, you feel it in your body. You start to get sweaty. You start to get shaky. You see all of these things. Like I can tell you what was on the TV, what color the carpet was, you know, I, all the, I can tell you all of the, all of the little details, but there was still that part of me that was, that thought, I don't know if this is real right? Because it had been so long. And why did it disappear? You know? Um, so knowing that you can't do it alone, for me seeking out the support of a, of a woman's shelter, women's group and therapy that was available, um, felt like a, a safe step. Um, because I couldn't trust myself. Um, and then once you start to establish that trust in yourself, then I would really encourage people to do the hard work, the work that like none of us want to do, whether that's, you know, meditations or maybe um, utilizing other services to access um, deeper parts of yourself, maybe, you know, um, your Akashic records or just going on the journey and seeing what unfolds for you. For me, it was through the yoga practice, right? Um, which then led me to a deeper understanding of, of self and source um, that kind of validated all of the feelings that I was having before. Um, so yeah, seeking out others, not letting yourself 
be an island because you really don't have to do it alone, whatever it is, whatever the trauma is or the repressed memory. I think that's so important because people can go a long time with this struggle of doubting reality and not really knowing what's real and what's not. That was something that my, my guest yesterday was also describing and um, her story is very different from yours, but that is a common denominator, that lack of trust and why you would have forgotten such a, such a terrible thing. And, and I also, in addition to all of the tools that we, that we have available to help, I think like just having the courage to not look away from your experience and what your, what, what your body is telling you that it, you need to look at. And because these things, although they seem momentous at the time, they can be broken down. They can be worked through. There is help available. I think that's so important. So thank you for bringing that to our attention. So what's next for you on your healing journey? Um, I definitely heal through action. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm a sensationalist. I like to, to, to feel it, but then I have to assimilate it. And that process can take, it can take some time. Um, I'm, I am definitely called to help others in this space, um, of self-love and self-acceptance. I think that, um, women in general in our society have, we should on ourselves a lot, right? We, we have been told um, in a variety of different ways that we need to be something other than what we are um, or that we need to appear in a certain way. Um, and I've definitely, I think, I, I've definitely tried on a lot of different hats, a lot of different suits, trying to find myself. And, and the only place I could find myself was turning inward um, and not being afraid of what that looked like. Um, that's another thing that I think is really prevalent in our society is using fear as a tool of suppression. Um, and that needs to be dismantled. It needs to be dismantled in every facet, every relationship that I can possibly think of in our current, um, in our current time. Um, and the only, the only way we can get there is through, through self-exploration and self-trust. So we've got to get past the fear. Um, so I want, I want to be available to, to essentially like hold your hand, you know, and, and know that you're, let everyone know that they're not alone. Um, that the time that we're living in is incredibly challenging. It's incredibly stressful. Uh, we don't have a lot of community is broken right now. And, and I think we need a return to community. Um, we need to be able to have multi-generational experiences mm-hmm. um, so we can heal collectively. So we have to do the individual work, but we also have to do the collective work. Uh, so we can all come to a space where we can be validated um, in our own experience, where we can be vulnerable without shame or without fear. Um, so that's that's what I've been working on for quite some time. It's definitely you know a long journey. It's a long experience. Um, but that's also where I feel called to put my energy. Mm. That's beautiful. 
I want to roll back just to something that you said yeah. earlier in that response um, about the importance of this integration time. So can you kind of break that down for us and tell us like what your process is and what, what that really requires? Yeah. So um, I think sometimes it, for me, it feels like I move through things almost at hyperspeed. Um, and I think that probably a lot of other moms have this experience where you've got X, Y, and Z that you need to do. And not just moms, anyone who feels a lot of responsibility. Um, there's a list of things that you have to check off for others before you necessarily put yourself first. So working in self-care and time for pause is um, a requirement for me. If I don't have time for me, it's specifically in the morning, I get up um, as early as I possibly can to still feel like I can sustain um, throughout all of my motherly duties through the end of the evening. Um, which usually looks like five or five thirty, and having a breathing practice to help myself anchor um, sets my day off on the right start. Sometimes it moves into meditation, sometimes not. It depends on where I'm at um, in my physical body and how well I'm able to tr uh, to transfer into more of that cellular space where I feel like I'm able to connect to that deeper self and soul. Sometimes it happens spontaneously. Sometimes it requires more effort, um, but that's where I'm able to um, gather the information and um, transform it into wisdom in my body. Instead of just knowledge that I've accumulated, it's through that process that I'm able to hold it um, in my cellular system. And then there's the, the process of sharing it, which is, is, um, its own practice um, that also, you know, has has a, a, a scope to it. Um, so I tend to share in nuggets. Um, a lot of it comes through in my my teaching, my yoga teaching. Um, anytime I'm on the mat, there's definitely like that connect to physical self, that connect to source, and that connect uh, connection to to love. I like to bring in a lot of poetry as well that helps uh, make a lot of the experiences and sensations that I'm feeling in my physical body feel more grounded and real. So it's, I would say it's multifaceted. It's multi-layered in the way that I um, process and assimilate. Um, so for instance, I mentioned earlier that I'm uncoupling from my, uh, my spouse. We've been together for 18 years. So it's, it's a pretty long time. Um, and there's lots of different facets for that. And just the process of being able to say to him, this is no longer working for me, took six months of me knowing that I needed, that this is what my heart, my soul was called to do. And then having to process what that was going to look like for other people, how I was going to move through it. And then, so right now, you know, it's, it's autumn. It was this spring that I, that I filed for divorce and started moving through that process. And it has literally been this week. It's um, that everything that I have been working through, through the spring and the summer has 
been present for me. It's been like a multi-layer cake um, that I feel like I'm currently like slicing into so I can see each of the layers, how over the past six months, it's been um, informing my physical experience, my mental and my emotional experience. So it's almost like I take where I move through all of these things where I've got a lot of little tasks to do. And then I take without really knowing it's, it's like the universe kind of brings it to me and says, okay, it's time for processing. So I get handed like this stack of information that I need to go through. And, and uh, that for me is a lot of pulling back. So a lot of self-care right now, extra long meditations. Um, later, I've got uh, a UV treatment that I'm doing, just more time for grounding, for self-care, so I can process more deeply everything that I've, I've been moving through. Yeah, that, that, that feels really important to share with people that you certainly can rush through these experiences but they're, they're, you'll find that they just keep coming up if you don't really fully integrate them and give yourself that gift of time to let it settle into your body and sort of work its way into you and then out of you. And there's so much that happens in that, those, those periods. And we really should encourage each other to take those, that time that's required. So. Yeah, this week I've, um, I heard this a while ago. It may have been when I first started um, teaching yoga. It was a, such, a, such a cute little slogan. Stop the glorification of busy. Mm. And I feel like a lot of us get caught there. And when we're caught there, there is no time for process. Um, so even though I have like my daily routine of minimal processing, if I don't take time to process the big chunk the big stack um it's my world will halt it, something outside of me stops everything else from happening because it yeah. because i need to process yeah like a pandemic <laughs> exactly exactly like a pandemic stay home for two weeks feel all the feels the fear <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is such, I feel like that's really such good information for people. So thank you so much. Um, let's move on to our lightning round. You ready? So ready. <laughs> Not really, but okay. we'll go with it. All right. Number one, what in your life have you not taken seriously enough? Hmm. What have I not taken seriously enough? laughter. I've not taken laughter seriously enough. I, I tend to take life too seriously. Um, and I will often breeze past those, those simple, like, I love the simple pleasure, but I don't, I find the serious side of the simple pleasure. So giving myself opportunity to enjoy just the, the cultivation of laughter and how profoundly healing it is yeah I was gonna it's my second question is what what do you take too seriously so I <laughs> <laughs> I find oh my gosh that I think that's pretty common for 
you know, people who consider themselves to be on some sort of seeking journey is that life is so incredibly loaded to the gills with meaning that you can really kind of get lost in, in the esoteric nature of everything that's happening and the sort of mundane things that occur just sort of happen and you're not even really paying attention to them. And one of the things that I've been discovering lately is when I, I'm actually, I wrote a blog about it and I'm about to put it on my website that this has been a big, huge surprise to me that when I started like really engaging with life, with people uh, as myself and allowing them to be themselves, I found a lot of sanctuary in that. A lot of that stillness that I had that I had within me, but I didn't have externally out in the world. I'm starting to see that it's now planting itself right in my daily life. It's been incredible experience. And um, yeah, so that like becoming more human, you know, like there's a lot there that we haven't really explored. So um, yeah, that's been me too. More that. And I've been asking for that too. I want more joy, more fun, more, more um, adventure. Yeah. So bring it on. Okay. Number three, are you a cloud gazer? Gosh. Yes, cloud and lights. <laughs> um, yes, clouds are amazing. I definitely, I'm a dreamy kind of person. I like to, I like to live in dreamland a little bit. And um, I don't even, I wouldn't even consider it a fan, a fantasy to me. It's all very real. Like the dreams are more real than sometimes real life is real. And I'll never forget the first time I felt like the big squeeze, that moment where feel like everything's at peace and life is perfect. And, and you got your squad behind you. You know, I was, I don't know, I was, I was in elementary school and I was walking home from my aunt's house and I look up at the sky and there's these big, beautiful clouds. And there's those sunbeams, those light beams, like peering through the clouds. And I just felt like, um, there's something bigger than me. You know, that was my first experience with source and being able to connect to it. And it was absolutely beautiful. So I've been smitten with all clouds. <laughs> oh my God. I am like obsessed with clouds. <laughs> I can't, I spend every single day looking at clouds. I, I, every single one has some sort of meaning for me. And it, it's funny. I just think it's funny. And, and this is a question I actually didn't make up myself. I found it somewhere and I was like, wow. <laughs> That's a really, yeah, like, I need that one. <laughs> Um, okay. Uh, number four, would you like to be famous? No. Did you Absolutely ever? Absolutely not. Yes. When I was a kid, I definitely wanted to be famous. I even had a stage name. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to be Lisa Fina Seesaw because seesaws were the most <laughs> amazing thing that I could think of. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I was, I was going to be a famous ballerina. Mm -hmm. And that was my name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but no, absolutely not now. Why not? No. Um, I don't want the response. I don't want that responsibility. Um, yeah, I want I want to hold people and support people, but not through any kind of like false lens. I don't want to be somebody else's puppet. Mm. And I feel like a lot of times with 
fame, you, you end up being somebody's puppet. Yeah. I've been there and I want to do it again. Yeah, I can relate to that. Um, awesome. I don't want to be famous either. Uh, and actually, I um, did. I, I, I sort of knew that I think everybody on the planet has a brief infatuation with fame. And I, I knew that like I had to resolve that before I could actually begin any kind of public life. And so I think that's why, even though I've always known that I was gonna write a book from the time I was seven years old, I, um, it wasn't until I was whatever, 59 or 58 that I actually did because I knew I couldn't do it before I had resolved the fame issue. All right, um, number five, what activities make you lose track of time? Oh, okay. Anytime I spend with my children, um, th that it's easeful. Okay. <laughs> when we're talking about like picking up your shoes and doing your laundry, those moments drag on forever, but those moments of ease, um, where you just kind of like drop into that bliss state, you know, it feels like you could push pause and allow those moments to last forever. And I also find it in in my meditation practice, I actually, and my breathing practice, um, I have to set a timer if I have somewhere I need to be because I can very easily lose track of time. Um, I also lose track of time in the woods anytime I'm communing with nature. Um, but that's a very, that's a very sacred space for me. That's definitely where I feel like I do so much of my healing is being able to ground into the earth, like literally take your shoes off, lay on the earth get naked and go in the ocean or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. For me, it's like any kind of like art. Okay. One more question. Okay. Thank you. Sorry. Um, no, no, actually skip. I, I don't have one more question. Do you, did you bring a question for me today? Yeah. So um, I had mentioned to you that the first time that I felt like I had communed with my soul, was when I felt that that experience of like light and transmission move through me. And I'm just curious, when was the first experience that you felt that connection of soul and source? Yeah, I, um, I, I think it's, it's interesting because I think as children, we probably like our lives are filled with those as really young, young, young people. But that's all we know. Like we're so close to source at that point. Like everything seems, you know, amazing. But um, I also was a child and it was also, I was sitting under a weeping willow tree in a park in my hometown. And it was the summer day. And we, I used to go to this uh, all day camp program where it was very unstructured. So you would just go there at eight in the morning and um, they would have, you know, some crafts or some a softball game or all kinds of things going on. And um, I was sitting under this weeping willow tree and the, it was like a hot, humid day, grew up in the mid Midwest too. Um, and the, the humidity is just rising off the grass and that smell, you know, that really earthy, grassy smell. And I just was like transformed in that moment, like whew, huge. And of course, like now it's, you know, that it's 
so common to have those experiences. I have them experiences. I have them all the time, especially cloud gazing. How about you? Um, well, yes. I, so my first experience was also like outside in, in nature, as I, I mentioned before with the light moving through. But um, I also definitely feel like um, now that I know how to name it and experience it, I, I am able to see it more. It's not that it ever went away. It's not that I wasn't ever able to access it. I just didn't know what I was accessing. So uh, that's given me enough. That's given me some empowerment to be able to set in that space and, and uh, kind of like steep in it. Yeah. It's because it's not something that happens to you. It's something that you notice that is, that is happening all the time. And so just mm-hmm. the more you notice it, the more you can experience it. It's magical and amazing, but we forget, you know, cause we've got, you know, shit to do and all that. So, right. Yeah. But that's, you know, people talk about home, you know, home, sweet home. Well, that's, that's home. So yeah, that's, home. that's where I like to commune and, and I like to get close to home. Mm, that's beautiful. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being with me today. I appreciate you and I appreciate your messages and your story. And thank you for sharing your story. Thank you, Kay. I really appreciate coming on your show and your podcast. I love listening to them all. So I, it's such a pleasure.